Well, we've got two plenaries this morning, and uh, both are by people called Sharon. And I've interviewed one of the Sharons, but and I'll get to that later. But I'm meeting a new Sharon this morning, and that is Sharon Garlow-Brown. And she has written a series of novels that put spiritual formation into relationship. And so this is very, sometimes she's called a, a, a female Richard Foster. I don't know how you feel about that or how Richard feels about that. <laughs> but she's put this whole process of spiritual formation and of the disciplines into a very relational series of novels, uh, Sensible Shoes, uh, Two Steps Forward. The third one is um, A Mile. Barefoot, barefoot, and now the, the fourth one is you're starting to write it, yes. And she's got um, just a lot of popularity, a lot of great following. Remember TV host Kathy Lee Gifford? She, uh, she's championed that book as uh, the favorite thing of 2013. So we really need to discover these books. They're down in crux. Take a look at them. But Sharon and her husband, Jack, have pastored churches in Scotland, where her son was born, in Oklahoma, and in England, and now they serve in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And she's just stepped off of the staff so she can devote herself more to this kind of work that she's doing. And we want to be really good to her, because the last time she came to speak in Canada in January, she was hospitalized for food poisoning and still got through her seminars. So she's gonna tell more of her personal story in her plenary, in her workshops this afternoon. She's gonna tell more of it there. And so um, you'll, you'll, you'll hear a little more of those kind of stories. But uh, I, I don't know even exactly what has shaped her life. This is her topic that she has chosen about thorns and humility. And I think we're all going to have some wonderful things to learn here. So please welcome Sharon Garlow-Brown. I want to start by um, offering a a story about a dream that I had um, 25 years ago now, when I was in my first semester of seminary. And it's one of those dreams that just has lingered. It's something that I wrote down immediately afterwards and continued to pray with it. Um, Let me give you a context just so that you'll understand some of the images of the dream. At the time, I was doing my field education work at a male maximum security prison in Yardville, New Jersey. I was 22, and we got really good attendance at Bible study. Um, (laughs) But it was during that that season in my life um, when this dream came to me as a gift. So in the dream... I was applying for a job at a police station. And the police officer, who had a real gruff, surly sort of demeanor, said to me, in order to get this job, you're going to have to bench press 200 pounds. Now, also as an aside, I'm the kid that the school captains fought over having to take on their team for PE. So my reply to the officer was, 200 pounds? I haven't done anything athletic in seven years, which I think is a biblical number for completion, right? So it was another way of me saying, I guess, I've never done anything athletic ever, ever, ever. And he looked at me and he said, well, those are the job requirements. So is it going to be a problem for you? And in the dream... I turned to him and said, no, it's not going to be a problem 
because my Lord Jesus is going to do it for me. And so he took me over to this enormous machine. To this day, I don't know what a bench press looks like. But in my dream, it was absolutely monstrous. And he strapped me in. And at first, I went to try to lift the weight. And then suddenly, I was, I was lifting it effortless. I mean, just again and again, as though it weighed absolutely nothing. I woke up before I found out if I got the job, but I knew it was one of those dreams to pay attention to. And so I began to pray. And what I sensed the Lord saying to me was this, Sharon, this is humility. When you know that it is absolutely impossible to do it in your own strength, but you have all confidence that I can do it in you and through you and for you. This is humility. And it was a message that I took to heart because there were many gifts that I thought I could have brought to the Lord, not athletic ones, obviously, but maybe some other ones. And it was this reminder that, no, Sharon, everything, everything depends upon my strength, my power made perfect in your weakness It was at that point in my life that our theme verses um, for this weekend began to really take root in my heart. Listen, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Listen. Paul says, Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong." Now, even as these verses have been foundational and formational for me over the years, even as I have been challenged to embrace them really as my life verses, I want to begin um, with a full disclosure as I start this presentation about humility. Because as I have been preparing for today, I have been deeply aware of my own battle with pride and with vainglory, fretting and wondering, will my session be good enough? What will they think of my presentation on humility, right? Oh, the irony of how the Lord um, reminds us of how much we need him. You know, the thing about humility, like any Christ-like virtue, is that humility, as Richard said last night, is not something that we can attain. It is not something that we can achieve through our self-effort. 
Some of you may know the famous quote from C.S. Lewis. His definition of humility is this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Want that one more time? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. So try achieving that. Try very, very, very hard not to think about yourself. And what are you thinking about? Exactly. So even if we perceive we are growing in humility, pride then sneaks in and hisses, look how far you've come. Aren't you something? And we can find ourselves crying out with Paul from Romans 7, who says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that's the good news to hold before us as we explore the theme of humility together. The power of God is made perfect in our weakness. God's grace is sufficient for us. And what we cannot achieve for ourselves out of our own flesh, God is able to work into us through the power of his spirit and by his grace. So thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right? i got to remember, it's amen. (laughs) Entitling my presentation, Stewarding Thorns, Spiritual Practices for Cultivating Humility. I have been very deliberate in choosing the word cultivate. So though we don't have the power to make ourselves humble, we can practice humbling ourselves. And this means embracing weakness as a gift, as a way to grow in the grace of humility. Now what Paul testifies to in our passage is that thorns can serve the very important purpose of keeping us from being puffed up and proud and self-reliant. Thorns can remind us of our limits, of our utter dependence upon God, and so Thorns can be a gift in our formation into Christ-likeness. As with any gift, however, we need to be mindful about how we steward it. Well, let's take a, a moment just to look a little bit more in detail about Paul and his thorn in the flesh. And throughout the history of the church, People have speculated about the nature of Paul's thorn. Was it a a physical ailment? Uh, Maybe trouble with his eyesight since he references writing with large letters? Or maybe it was the bodily ailment that he mentions to the Galatian church that was a trial for them. Others have speculated that it was a spiritual affliction, a recurring temptation or sin. Perhaps the thorn was even a person like Alexander the coppersmith, whom Paul described as someone who, quote, did him much harm. The reality is we don't know what the thorn was, but here's what we do know. For one thing, Paul did not initially view the thorn as an instrument of grace, but rather as a messenger of Satan. He's very clear about that, and he says also that it was designed to torment him, to afflict him. 
And because that thorn brought so much affliction to him, he asked God to remove it, begged God, in fact, three times to remove the thorn. And you can imagine the rationale that Paul might have used as he went to God in prayer about this thorn. If you remove this affliction, Lord, I can be so much more effective in ministry. Lord, if, if you just remove this thorn, I can be free to reach so many more people with the gospel. Lord, if you'll just deliver me from this torment, from this affliction, I can bring you more glory. And those are good reasons, aren't they, for God to remove a thorn, their kingdom reasons, and especially if the thorn is from Satan, designed to torment and discourage Paul, then why wouldn't God remove it? Because, Paul says, because what Satan intended to use for evil, God intends to use for good. And so the very thing intended to be an affliction in Paul's life instead becomes a holy instrument in the Lord's hands, able to shape Paul's character and keep him from becoming too elated, too puffed up, too proud. The thorn is transformed from a source of discouragement into an agent of grace, teaching Paul the gift of utter dependence upon God and revealing the wonder of God's power made perfect in weakness. The thorn helps to cultivate the soil where humility will take deeper root and flourish in Paul's life. Now notice that it's not the thorn that changes. It is Paul's perception of the thorn that changes as he seeks God in prayer. Paul sees that if God will not remove it, then God will use it. And that paradigm shift makes all the difference for him. The truth is, thorns can lead us to despair, to resignation, to self-pity, where they serve the enemy's purpose of tormenting us and afflicting us. Or, or, thorns can lead us to greater intimacy with God, greater dependence upon the one who loves us and has called us according to his purpose. And God's purpose is to display his glory through us, a glory which is often best glimpsed through our weaknesses. We see this principle again and again throughout scripture, don't we? That God chooses the weak to display his glory. That was the story of Israel, whom God chose not because they were strong and mighty and many, but because they were few. And when the Lord worked mightily on Israel's behalf, the other nations did not say, wow, look how great Israel is. No, they testified how great the God of Israel Or think about the words that that Philip read for us this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen again 
for this theme of God's power being made perfect in weakness, Paul says, consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boasting in our weaknesses in order to boast in the Lord's power and grace and wisdom and love, this takes intentionality and practice because our primary view of weakness is not typically one of celebration, rejoicing, and trust, right? So think of Moses at the burning bush, and he's called by God to confront Pharaoh and demand that he set God's people free from captivity in Egypt. Now, Moses doesn't immediately jump for joy at this plan. He doesn't say, how while I am completely aware of my insufficiency of my own resources, though I clearly see my own weaknesses and limits, I am nevertheless absolutely confident that you, O Lord, will be accomplishing your purposes through me. That's not what Moses says. The first thing Moses says is, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And even when God answers the question by saying, this isn't about you, Moses. I will be with you. Even then, Moses goes on to give God a whole long list of reasons why this is not a good idea, why he isn't the man for the job, until finally he bluntly exclaims, Lord, just send somebody else. Now, there's a word for Moses' posture at the burning bush, a word I learned from Rebecca DeYoung, author of a fantastic book called Glittering Vices. I highly, highly recommend it. And that word is (laughs) pusillanimity, if she can say it, pusillanimity. Pusillanimity. You want me to spell it for you? P-U-S-I-L-L-A-N-I-M-I-T-Y. Pusillanimity. Try it. See if it rolls off your tongue. Pusillanimity. I'm going to be saying it a lot. Pusillanimity means smallness of soul. It means faint-heartedness. Pusillanimity shrinks back in the face of challenge. The pusillanimous person sees only her own limits and insufficiency. She lives with a chronic sense of inadequacy, a thinking less of herself that some might mistake for humility. 
But despair over one's weaknesses and limits is not the same as humility. Pusillanimity says, I can't. Humility says, I can't. But God can. Pusillanimity is self-focused, self-protective, self-absorbed, afraid of failure, afraid of being exposed and shamed as weak or imperfect. And so pusillanimity is rooted in pride. If we are not convinced of God's love for us, God's faithfulness to us, if we are not at rest in the grace and power and trustworthiness of a good and generous God, we will either shrink back in fear or we will seek to puff ourselves up through the pursuit of achievement, honor, status, recognition, possessions, any number of false gods that promise worth and security and significance. And that's why the foundation of our life with God must be built upon the character of God. We have got to be rooted and grounded in the height and depth, the length and breadth of the love of God made known for us through Jesus Christ. We have got to be convinced that God is good, that God is for us, that God is at work in us, enabling us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Humility sees both the self and God clearly. Humility acknowledges weaknesses and boasts in God's power. Humility readily confesses that we have this treasure in earthen jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and not to us. Humility says, apart from God, I can do nothing. But... God loves me. He has called me by name. I am his. And therefore, God is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that I could think, ask, or imagine according to the power at work within me. This is humility. And what God offers Moses at the burning bush is the remedy for pusillanimity. Moses, get your eyes off your own weaknesses and your own limits and trust my power. And what we see as Moses moves forward as the leader of God's people is his growth in humility, his growth and his confidence in God's power to accomplish God's plan no matter what. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So what about us? How confident are we in God's power, in God's grace, in God's love, in God's faithfulness? 
And I wonder where you fix your mind and heart to be reassured of who God is and who you are in Christ. Where do you fix your mind and heart? Because meditating on the character of God, the trustworthiness of God, the love of God, is an essential spiritual practice for cultivating humility. If pride is rooted in a desire for control, then humility is rooted in trust. So consider ways to dwell with the word. Consider scripture texts that reveal who God is and that remind you that God is trustworthy. Rehearse God's faithfulness to you as a spiritual practice. The times when you have seen God at work on your behalf, the times when God has encouraged your faith, not just individually, but in in community. We cultivate humility by remembering who God is and what God has done. And because I'm not just interested in speaking about spiritual practice, but giving some space in this conference called Refresh for you to engage with some of these things, I'm going to give a moment of quiet for you to consider, Lord, how have you revealed your faithfulness to me? And to meditate on that. Or what scripture texts reassure me of your love and your trustworthiness? I'm going to give you some moments of quiet reflection. Maybe the Lord would bring to mind some verses. Or if nothing comes to mind, fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's be quiet for a moment as we ponder that. And if something has come to mind, if you want to take a moment and just make a note of it so you can return to it later. So meditating on the love of God. Spiritual practice for cultivating humility. I also want to talk about prayer as an essential practice for cultivating humility. Think about how Paul processed his thorn with God in prayer and what insights came to him about his own struggle. So in prayer, he names his agitation to God. He names his affliction to God. And not just once, but a real true wrestling Lord, I'm offering you my agitation. Here it is. And in prayer, he pleads for God to deliver him from his thorn. In prayer, he wrestles with God's purpose. And through prayer, he receives God's response. And through prayer, he also is made aware of the grace and the power of God being given to him. And so he's able to embrace his weakness as a gift. But this is all happening, Paul says, in the context of prayer, in his conversation with God. And so we're also going to take some time with some quiet space to go through a process of prayer where I'll lead you through kind of some different steps for quiet reflection and dialogue 
with God. So the first, the first movement of prayer for this, if you will, is to think about the thorns in your own life. What agitates you? Think about it maybe even in a chronic sort of way. What chronically agitates you or discourages you or afflicts you, even torments you? That's the language that Paul uses. Think about that. And bring to mind whatever you view as inhibiting your fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. The thing that you wish God would remove from you, maybe you've, something you've pleaded with God to remove or change. So maybe a fear, maybe a pattern of sin, an addiction, maybe a physical weakness or limitation. Perhaps it's a past failure that continues to have a grip and impact your way forward or an emotional struggle. Maybe a sense of being restricted in your opportunity to serve. Now some thorns might come to mind quite quickly and others might take more time both to discern and then the courage to name it. And so in a process of prayer, ask God to help you identify the thorns and then speak to God about them. Give you some quiet moments to do that. And then continuing in a posture of prayer, consider what purposes God might accomplish in you and through you because of the thorn, because of the weakness. How might this weakness, this thorn, become a holy instrument to shape you, to form you? How might the thorn deepen your dependence upon God and lead you to despair of your own strength so that you experience God's power made perfect in your weakness? And how might it keep you from being prideful or puffed up? Start a dialogue with God about the purpose, what God might do in you because of the weakness. And moving forward in prayer, is there anything for you to confess to God? Any pride or pusillanimity? Any resistance to being formed into Christ-likeness? Or perhaps to repent of depending on your own strength instead of embracing God's. An opportunity for quiet confession and repentance.
And now a moment to receive forgiveness. The good news that God's grace is sufficient for you. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take a moment and receive. And moving from the prayer of confession and repentance and receiving God's forgiveness to transition to a humble posture of gratitude. What are you able to give God thanks for right now in light of your weakness? How are you able to embrace the gift of the thorn? Offer your longing or your confidence that God will use it for his purposes. And if you're not ready to be grateful, offer what's honest. Are you willing to have your perspective shifted to glimpse how God's grace is sufficient for you, how his power is made perfect in your weakness? Name to God your gratitude, your longing, your fear. And one final movement of prayer, and that is asking God for the courage to boast in weakness. Consider what it would mean to boast about your weakness. To whom could you boast, and what would you say? Offer that to God in prayer. And so all these movements of prayer, the bringing of need to God, the asking for discernment, see what God is doing, to practice confessing, repenting, receiving God's grace, to practice gratitude, and then to consider how God is empowering to move forward. All of these, part of that prayer practice for cultivating humility. This boasting about weaknesses, this is countercultural, isn't it? Think of our social media these days. Um, we do everything we possibly can do to hide behind an everything's perfect mask, to conceal our flaws, to hide our failures. But humility means coming into the light and declaring, you see this weakness here? You see this weakness? This is where I am despairing of my own strength and trusting God's. This is where I am most aware of my insufficiency and where I am casting myself upon God's faithfulness. So rejoice with me here as God reveals his glory here, right here. And so as a spiritual practice for cultivating humility, take that next step out of prayer and choose a trustworthy friend, a companion on the journey to whom you can boldly confess your weaknesses. Because naming our thorns, naming our weaknesses to others is a way of experiencing God's grace in community. And this is a precious gift worth celebrating. 
And what we discover as we take down those masks of everything's perfect and actually come out from hiding and put the fig leaves aside, what we discover is the gift of community that says, me too. I thought I was alone, but I am with you in this. And so find ways to practice cultivating humility in community. It's a way that God forms us. Practice boasting about God's power, God's grace, together. Now, Paul, when he talks about boasting in weakness, also speaks about being content in other circumstances, in trials that provide opportunities for God's power and glory to be revealed. Listen again to what he says. He says, three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, these are not the sort of things we post on social media under the hashtag blessed, right? But Paul contends that these are the very sort of circumstances that provide the opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed. And so I want to look briefly at just a few other ways that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit, with the grace of God, ways to be formed in Christ-like humility as we seek to demonstrate God's power being made perfect. Because remember, while we cannot attain humility by trying harder, we can partner with the Spirit through the practice of spiritual disciplines to crucify our pride. Now, to illustrate what it might mean to be content with insults. I'm going to offer you three stories. Two of them come out of the ancient church, and one is a true story from a contemporary pastor. And each one, I think, demonstrates the stunning beauty of humility. And then after each story, I'm going to give you just a a moment of quiet so you can hear the story and then reflect and receive the story. So I'm not going to rush from one to the other, but story and then an opportunity to just reflect on the impact of the story, what you hear, what the invitation of the story might be to you. So again, two from the ancient church, one true story from a contemporary pastor. Listen. One day, some men were sitting in front of their church in the desert, consulting Abba John for his wisdom. As Abba John spoke, one of the men became jealous and lashed out at him. John, he said, your vessel is full of poison. Abba John replied, that is very true. And you have said that when you only see the outside of the cup. But if you were able to see the filth on the inside too, what would you say then? 
One day, a young man sought out Abba Macarius for wisdom about how to live his life in Christ. The old man told him to go to a cemetery and curse the dead and throw rocks at them. So he did. And when he returned, the old man asked if the dead responded. The young man said, no, they're dead. So Abba Macarius told him to return to the cemetery and praise the dead. So he went and he praised the dead for their faithfulness. And then he went back to Abba Macarius who asked him if the dead responded. He said, no, they're dead. And then Abba Macarius said, be like the dead. Take no account of either the scorn of men or their praise. A few years ago, I heard a pastor tell a story about confronting some of his denomination's leadership about legalism. I'm going to change his name because I don't know what denomination he was in. We can imagine how the leadership of the church responded to this pastor's um, bringing sin to light, so to speak. They were infuriated. And they responded by circulating a letter throughout the entire denomination to all of their particular churches, attacking the pastor's character. The pastor, whom I'll call Ken Smith, also received a copy of the letter. The letter said this, Ken Smith is rebellious, arrogant, and hypocritical. We, the undersigned, attest to this. And then at the bottom of the page was a list of signatures of everyone who was attesting that he was arrogant, hypocritical, and rebellious. Imagine getting that in your mailbox one afternoon. Ken's first response was rage. How dare they turn this around on me? And then he said, he began to read the letter again, more slowly. Ken Smith is rebellious. He thought for a moment, he said, actually, that's true. Ken Smith is arrogant. Actually, that's true, too. Ken Smith is hypocritical. He said, that's absolutely true. And he said, in a moment of sanity, he simply signed his name underneath theirs <laughs> and mailed the letter back to them. And he said, this is freedom. This is where I want to live. Let me give you a moment of quiet to ponder the invitation of the story. When we are utterly convinced of God's love for us, God's acceptance of us, God's grace for us. We are free to hear the criticism and scorn of others without being destroyed by it. 
We can sign on to whatever truth is concealed within the accusation and let the lies go and we can come to the Lord confident that he will not reject us. We can repent of whatever sin has been brought to the light and ask him to change us and grow us, knowing God loves us and welcomes us and forgives us is the pathway to freedom, to equanimity, and to humility. And in particular, the practice of keeping silence, of refusing to defend ourselves or retaliate, can help us keep company with our Savior, who, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2, when they hurled their insults at him, did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And I've got to say that every time I read the stories of Jesus on his way to the cross and on the cross, I am amazed by his restraint. I marvel at how he remained silent when they falsely accused him, how he refused to lash out in anger or defend his integrity, how he resisted every single temptation to prove who he was. His humility is stunning to me and illustrates again and again just how much I am not like him. When I am insulted, I'm offended. When I'm falsely accused, I want to justify myself and retaliate, even if that's a passive-aggressive, because that's my favorite form of anger. And quite honestly, I do not seek opportunities to die to myself regarding my reputation and my honor. But Paul sees insults, particularly insults that he's enduring for the sake of Christ, he sees these insults as providing a context for demonstrating God's power, God's strength. I'm not there. I'm not dead to my vanity and ego. And so practicing silence when I'm insulted, even going so far as to bless those who insult, these are practices that strike at the very heart of my pride. The truth is, I want to be humble without ever being humbled. I want control over how I humble myself, which is yet another manifestation of pride. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. <laughs> have mercy. When we know when we truly know who and whose we are, when we are deeply at rest in the love of God, in the grace of Jesus Christ, we'll be freed from the impulse to prove who we are. We'll be free from the desire to retaliate, free to forgive, to bless, to boast in our weaknesses, and even free to extend love to others even those who make life a trial for us, through the practice of humble servanthood. And this is the last one I want to consider today. Nathan and Richard mentioned it last night, the discipline of service in cultivating humility. 
In the well-known passage in Philippians 2, Paul exhorts us to practice the same kind of humility that Jesus Christ demonstrated, both in his incarnation, in his life, and in his crucifixion. So listen. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our call to demonstrate to others what Christ himself not only demonstrated but offered to us We're called to humble ourselves to love and serve others because we have been extravagantly loved and served. And so we're going to finish this morning with a text that looks at Jesus' life. And I'm going to give you some questions that I hope you'll take away. We're not, if I were doing this on retreat, we'd take a lot of time with this exercise. Um, But I hope you're able to take some reflection questions away and pray with them as the day as the week, weeks unfold. And so this is the, the well-known scene from John's Gospel in chapter 13 in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples who have been arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. Keep in mind, as I read, as you imagine yourself there, that Judas at this point is still in the room. And so listen. Now, Before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean, and you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, Very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. I want to invite you to imagine Jesus kneeling before you, looking you in the eye, reaching for your dust-covered, unwashed feet. Do you offer your feet to him? Why or why not? Maybe you're like Peter saying, nope, nope, not going to do that. Jesus, not for me, not this. And so if there's any resistance in you as you imagine that scene unfold and imagine that you are in the circle and that Jesus is kneeling before you, would you offer that resistance to him about that? We can only offer to others what we ourselves have received, and that's why it's so important to receive from Jesus the love, the humility. And then move to imagining, if you will, um, the, perfect, the person that you find most difficult to love and to serve. Maybe there are several. And in prayer, would you watch Jesus kneel to wash his or her feet? And how do you feel about that? And then offer your thoughts to God in prayer, your feelings to God in prayer. And now in prayer, imagine that Jesus rises and hands you the basin and the towel 
and he invites you to kneel and wash the feet of the one who has betrayed you or made life a trial for you? And how do you respond? And if you would offer your thoughts and your feelings to God in prayer. And then if you would contemplate this with God, is there any concrete act of humble love and service that God is calling you to undertake out of love for Christ? And let's pray together. Oh Lord, you have given us every encouragement in Christ. You have given us consolation from your love. You have invited us to share in your spirit. You call us to compassion and sympathy. And so we pray this day for the grace of having the same love that has been offered to us. That she would set us free from selfish ambition and conceit and enable us, Lord, with humility to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And in all these things, to be constantly reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. Fix our eyes, O Lord, on the cross of Jesus Christ, where your love was best fully and forever and ever demonstrated. When we face the thorns that torment and afflict, O Lord, remind us of your faithfulness, of your trustworthiness, of your love and your care for us. And I pray your special blessing upon any in this room this day who are weary of weakness and are longing for your truth, that your power is made perfect here to be revealed. And so, Lord, come and do something new. And if you will not remove the thorns, O Lord, then use them for your glory. And give us eyes to perceive how you are at work to demonstrate that your grace is sufficient and that your power is made perfect in weakness. Oh, Lord, make us people of prayer. Show us the gift of silence. Deliver us from every need to prove who we are instead of resting in whose we are. And Lord, give us the courage to go forth and humbly love and serve. We receive, Lord, this day, your grace, which is sufficient, and your power, which is made perfect in every weakness. And with Paul, we declare with joy, we boast that when we are weak, then we are strong. May all of this be so in the steadfast and trustworthy name of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And the beloved of God said, Amen. Amen.